You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, I'm going to welcome you all back to your seats. If you guys want to get your last coffee and pastries and head on back. And as you do so, if you want to open to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. That's where it'll be, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. If you are using one of the hardback black Bibles that we have over on the table, you're on page 976 through 977. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, we'd love to just, you know, get this in your hands. And this is our gift to you. Feel free to take this home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, Otherwise, feel free to just use it today if you want to. Otherwise, the words also will appear on the screen beside me. So Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And we're continuing in our series called The Foundations of Faith. And as we've been walking through that, we've been looking at different aspects of how Paul is instructing this church, this young church in Ephesus, and just how to grow in fellowship with one another. And today we're laying the foundation stone of relational peace. In a world that is filled with conflict, we can just ask, who who doesn't want peace, right? We all want peace. And how does God take people who are separated from one another and make them into a new people. What a miracle that it is. And when I say separated, this is not just small conflict. This is deep conflict. And as I read from Ephesians 2, you'll hear the language Paul uses, this vivid language describing the conflict and the separation that exists. But we're also going to hear the way that God brings peace. And today, God wants us to learn how to be agents of peace in the world. As people who have been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, we become ministers of that reconciliation in the world. And so let's read from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word if you would. And when I finish reading it, I'll say this phrase that we've been learning together. I'll just say, this is the word of the Lord in recognition of what it is that we just read. And I'm going to ask you to say in response, thanks be to God in gratitude for the word that God has given us. And so I'll read and you can follow along. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets." Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place 
for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Grab a seat and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word here and for the gift it is to us, your people. And here we just ask, God, that you'd help us see what you have for us. Um, God, that you'd help us see how we can be ministers of reconciliation. That you'd help us to see the miracle of reconciliation you have brought through the blood of Christ. That you would give us even clarity how to apply this in our day, right now, today, with one another, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, family, and friends. So God, would you help us by the power of your spirit behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. And pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was praying with a friend recently, and as we were praying, he prayed these words. He just said, God, would you help us to see if there's anyone that you're calling us to forgive? And I, I don't know if he would remember praying those prayers if I asked him that now, but I do. That phrase stuck with me because the minute they left his mouth, before my mind came the name of someone that I, I felt like God was calling me to work toward reconciliation with, his, their face just like appeared before my eyes. And I know that that relationship is going to take time to heal, but I know that God's Spirit wants to do some work in that. That relationship has layers, uh, a history, it has some challenges. True and genuine reconciliation will not come quickly, but God is telling us, even in this passage, that it's possible. And here's what I know. We live in a world that is filled with conflict. It's filled with broken relationships. Reconciliation is often hard, but God wants to bring peace. And so the message of our text and our sermon today is just simple. It'll appear on the screen. Just Jesus came to bring peace to your relationship with God and one another. You see the horizontal and vertical dimensions of that peace. One of the effects of Jesus' death and resurrection is that he brings peace. In fact, Paul uses that word peace four times here in this passage. And if you remember from the opening sermon of the series, in chapter 1, verse 2, Paul wants two things for these, uh, these people he's writing to. He wants hope, he wants peace for them. Throughout the letter, he's going to emphasize peace, and nowhere more than in this passage right here. And here's what I know. We all want peace. We long for it. Our hearts are warmed by stories of reconciliation. We desire peace, and our souls ache under the weight of broken relationships. Sometimes that's relationships between individuals. Maybe you know two people who are in conflict with one another, and you feel that. Maybe you are in conflict, unreconciled with somebody, and you feel that. It also is on a, a, a kind of a broader level between nations and cultures and races and political parties. Conflict exists in us, between us and ourselves, and beneath all of that human conflict is conflict and enmity between us and God, and we long for peace in the midst of all that. It feels at times, though, elusive. It feels like a vapor that we want to grab onto but can't quite hold. We want peace, and let's see in our text here how God is bringing peace through Jesus. And so here's our outline for us. First, we long for a beautiful vision of peace. Second, we suffer under the broken reality of conflict. And third, we remember the blood that brings peace. So first, we long for a beautiful vision of peace. The end of our passage, we're going to start at the end. The end of our passage, verses 18 through 22, presents this beautiful vision that Paul has in mind for the peace that we long for. In a world filled with conflict, if we understand what Paul is describing here at the end of the passage, it will warm our heart. It will make us long for that future together. And 
Paul uses three analogies for the peace that comes through Jesus. Citizenship, family, and temple. We see citizenship in verse 19, where he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, no longer separated, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And then he also uses familial language in verse 19, where he says that we are now members of the household of God. And then he finally starts to get into this kind of building and temple language in verses 20 through 21, where he talks about the apostles and the prophets as the foundation, Jesus as the cornerstone, and us who are joined together, growing into the holy temple of God. And these three images, they describe a change in relationship, a change in our identity. But it's not just an individual identity. This is a corporate, a shared, communal identity that we have together. Because one citizen does not make a kingdom. One member does not make a household. One stone does not make a temple. This is something we do together. Through Jesus, God is bringing peace to his people. That is the beautiful vision that we are working toward. Now, it's not a complete work. We know that. Paul even uses language to describe process, the process of the temple being made complete. We're in the process of being joined together and growing into a holy temple. God is at work through us to bring this peace into reality. And if we stick with the stones into temple analogy for a little bit longer, it is as if there are all these stones in the world, many of which have conflict with one another for any number of reasons. And if you just kind of imagine with me that we have all these different stones, we have kind of the Democrat stone over here and the Republican stone over there. And then we have the black stone here and the white stone here and the Asian stone and the Hispanic stone. And we have the affluent stone and the impoverished stone, the educated stones and the uneducated stones, able-bodied or handicapped, the female stone and the male stone, heterosexual stone and same-sex attracted stone, progressives and conservatives, Americans, Russians, Arabs, urban, suburban, rural. You can think about all these different stones that might exist. And if you think about all these stones, if you collect them all into one space, one room, can you imagine what that would be like? All of these different peoples and conflict and history gathered in one place. And you can you imagine asking them to put, <clears throat> to put themselves into some kind of structure to build a temple from themselves? Would you get any structure at all? Would there be some that are just completely left out? Probably more likely you'd get like five or six different structures, all of them suspicious of one another. Now, what if the enmity that exists between these disparate stones was actually resolved? And I don't mean like just kind of surface, but I mean really, truly resolved through grace and understanding and love that they are joined together into one structure, building this majestic and beautiful structure, this temple. In reality, the structure itself would be a beautiful thing, but not the most beautiful thing. The most beautiful thing that would have happened is not the structure, but the fact that unity has come from these disparate stones that used to be divided but have come together in harmony. This is the vision that God has for us through the blood of Jesus. This is what we are working toward. And this happens on the level of one individual to another. It it also happens between races and cultures and political ideologies. And I want to talk a little bit more and even apply this on the, va- on the level of individuals, one to another. If we have been given this beautiful vision of peace that Christ wants for us, 
then we must also see that our contribution to this vision is one of the ways that Paul or that God has prepared these good works for us to do that we read about at the end of our last passage in verse 10. One of these good works is to work toward this type of unity. Now, and I don't know how many of you have heard about or read about the Asbury revival that happened over the last several months, but beginning on February 8th, After a chapel service on the campus of Asbury, some students stuck around afterward to pray together and to sing together, and what started as just a small group became over two weeks around-the-clock prayer meeting. It was all over the news. It became very public very quickly, and of course, when anything becomes that public, then debates begin about whether it was good or whether it was bad or, or what was good and what was bad. And of course, every blogger, you know, graced us with their opinion of what was good or what was bad, and... Uh, I'm not going to give you my opinion, right? I wasn't there. I'm not an expert in these things. But one of the things I do look for in this is what is the fruit that's produced? What's happening as a result? And the reality is, if real revival is happening, one of the fruits that would be produced is the reconciliation that we're talking about right here, that people who had enmity would be reconciled to one another. And I heard an interview this past week from a student, a seminary student at Asbury, who was also a prayer leader, And as he was there on one of the first nights of the revival, he was just asking the Lord, okay, Lord, what do you want to do in me through this process? What do you want to work on in me? And he was reading through his journaling app of previous journal entries that he had put in. And one of them he came across was just kind of, he was writing about a conflict he had had with another seminary student in their very first year in class. So it was two or three years earlier. And he was kind of reminded of this conflict that he had. And then as he lifted his eyes from his journaling app, immediately Across the room, he locked eyes with this fellow student with whom he had conflict that had never been reconciled. The other student acknowledged him as well, and they crossed the room, sat down with one another, worked out what had been in conflict, offered forgiveness, asked for forgiveness, and were reconciled to one another. This is the fruit of God's work. This is what we're talking about. And two stones here, separated from one another, brought together to form a beautiful temple, Now, say what you will about the revival, right? But when I hear stories like this, I cannot help but believe God's spirit is at work. And so here's my challenge to you today. Here's an application for all of us. Do you have someone in your life that you need to reconcile with? Is there someone who needs your forgiveness? Or is there someone who needs you to ask for forgiveness? Now, even as I ask that question, I wonder if like me, as I was praying with my friend, did someone come to your mind? Was there someone's name that came to your mind? Maybe even a face that appeared even before your eyes. I believe that God's, that's God's spirit working in you, wanting to call you toward working out this reconciliation in your life. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It, it might mean that you reach out to them even this week. For some of you, it might mean you just write their name down in a prayer journal and you start praying, preparing yourself for the potentially painful reality of what reconciliation might mean for you in that relationship. There's this beautiful vision of peace that God has given us in this passage. And if we are reconciled to God through Jesus, then we are now agents of this beautiful vision. This is part of the work that we are called to as those who have been united to Christ. But there's a challenge, right? There's, the reason this has become so beautiful is because there's a barrier, there's difficulty. And so we come to the second point. We suffer under the broken reality of conflict. Paul gives a fairly clear picture of the reality of re- uh, relational conflict here in this passage. And 
For example, he references this derogatory term that was used of the Gentiles in verse 11 when he says that they were called the uncircumcision. That doesn't maybe seem like a big deal to us, but that would be like calling someone an ethnic slur today, the kind of thing that would get you fired from your job. Then he describes them as outsiders, separated from God's promises, alienated from God's people. In verse 14, he uses this image of a dividing wall of hostility. This is all the language he uses to describe this conflict. In describing the conflict, Paul references ethnic slurs, separation, enmity, hostility, and we are under no illusion that things have changed in the last 2,000 years. We still deal with these things today. You can pick anywhere in the world and learn about the history of that place, and you will find ethnic and cultural groups that have been in conflict for generations. And in the case of Paul's letter here, he's talking specifically about Jewish believers and Gentile believers coming together, formerly separated from one another. And in many ways, the structure of verses 1 through 10 and verses 11 through 22, they parallel one another. And so I want to describe that to you right now, because both of them describe the problem, both of them talk about agents of that problem, and then both of them show God's solution to the problem and the results. So we went through verses 1 through 10 last week, and in many ways, that kind of is talking to them as people who can express this as individuals, individual relationships with God. And verses 11 through 22 is talking about how they do it together, how they have this new identity together. And so verses 1 through 10, the problem was that they were dead. Verse 1, the agents of that problem are the world, the devil, and the flesh from verses 2 to 3. The solution is in verses 4 through 9, where it says, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive by his grace. And then the result is in verse 10, that God prepared good works for us to do. And so we see that flow in verses 1 through 10. It's repeated in verses 11 through 12, but now with the corporate identity. In our passage, the problem is that we are separated from God, his promises, and his people, verses 11 through 12. And the agent of that separation is the dividing wall of hostility, which is expressed in ordinances from verses 14 and 15. The solution in verse 13 is Christ. It says, but now in Christ. Do you see the parallel? Verse 4, but God. Verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by Christ's blood. And the result then is that we are made into one. There's unity as described in these analogies, citizenship, family, temple, verses 18 through 22. And I want to talk a little bit more about the agents of our separation. Paul uses this as a phrase, dividing wall, and we should understand what that means. How does that express itself in this division? He talks about that in verse 14. There was a reference to two different things. This dividing wall was, one, a reference to an actual dividing wall that was in the temple. There was a four and a half foot tall uh, wall in the temple that made it clear where Gentiles could go and where they could not go. And around that wall were all these inscriptions that gave them a warning. If you're a foreigner and you cross this wall, then you're taking your life into your own hands. The penalty could be death. The second kind of le less literal application of this dividing wall was actually a reference to the application of the ordinances, that's the word that's used, ordinances and regulations from the Old Testament. There were important Jewish purity rites that had been observed by them for generations, washing rituals and circumcision and separation from anyone that would be deemed unclean. And here is where the dividing wall becomes such a powerful picture because walls separate. They keep people out. They divide. 
And our desire to build walls is not always bad, though. We, should, we, should, we gotta recognize the role that they play, but they can become destructive. Walls also form protection. They keep us safe. For example, we have purity habits, walls, if you will, that keep us safe from eating dangerous foods, right? If you find moldy food, you don't eat it for fear it will get, you'll get sick. This is a purity law that we have. This is sort of a way of living with walls, okay? But when applied to morality and relationships, walls become a lot more complicated. Not, not entirely unnecessary, but complicated. And we do this today as a society. We build walls around certain morality For example, we have a fairly well-established agreement as a society that racism is bad. And so we've built a wall of morality around that. That doesn't mean everybody's bought in. It doesn't mean everybody's perfect. But if you're going to be a racist and use ethnic slurs, then you will experience the relational consequences of that. You will get canceled or you'll lose your job. That's a wall. We erect walls to keep us pure and moral and safe. That is what many of the leaders of the Jewish community had done. They had created an intricate number of ordinances and commands. They had cre- but, but their walls had created division and enmity and separation and strife. But Jesus, he came to remove those barriers. In fact, there's this subtle little phrase that Paul uses that points at what he's trying to get at here. And he says um, that this circumcision from verse 11 was made in the flesh by hands. It's not an accidental phrase that Paul uses. That phrase, made with human hands, was used in the Old Testament to talk about creating idols. He's meaning to communicate to them that their practice of circumcision was no longer necessary. In fact, they would make idols with human hands. And here Paul is saying the way they practiced circumcision was like an idol worship. Because all the rituals that they had built, all the regulations that had separated them from others, they were taking the place of God for them. They missed the promises, the covenants, and what they were intended to be. Even though the Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of God, as it says in verse 12, the Israelites had also violated the covenants of God themselves by taking the good laws that God God had given them. Laws that were meant to bring blessing to Israel and blessing to the nations. Laws that were meant to promote justice and peace and flourishing. And they had hijacked them for their own idolatrous and sinful desires. And they had created division that diminished the dignity of humanity and the nations. And so we need to be very careful about the walls that we create. Because some walls will be necessary. The Bible warns of wolves that will come in to want to attack the sheep. As a pastor and an elder, I feel a responsibility to protect sheep from wolves and false teachers, and that requires some thoughtful work to protect us. But we need to be careful about creating these walls that may at times divide more than they protect. The ones that we are meant to be, or the ones who were meant to be agents of peace in the world had become advocates for separation and enmity. And the reality is that we still have a propensity for doing that today. That's easy to do. As Christians, we can erect all sorts of walls, and many do not always bring flourishing and peace, but separation and enmity. And so we need to ask ourselves, if we have walls that Jesus wants to tear down, walls that he died to destroy, and here's a good way to interrogate the walls that we've built. If we would rather have somebody adopt our rule or our regulation than our Savior, then that's a rule that our Savior may want to destroy. If you are more passionate about your neighbor agreeing with your politics than you are about them meeting your Savior, then you're drawing the dividing lines in the wrong place. 
We are meant to be agents of blessing and peace and reconciliation. And we must take seriously the call we have to interrogate the walls that we're so quick to build. And now let's talk a little bit about the solution Paul actually provides to this challenge, this problem, as we remember the blood that brings peace. Throughout the entire first half of Ephesians, the first three chapters, to the best of my knowledge, there's only one command that Paul gives, only one, and it's here in verse 11. The command is remember. In particular, Paul is telling them to remember the reality of their lives before Christ entered the picture. Remember, you were slandered by others, separated from Christ, alienated from God's people, strangers to God's covenant promises. Remember who you were. And in doing that, he doesn't just want to remember who they were, but in remembering this previous condition to also remember God's answer for it. Remember you were, verses 11 and 12, but now in Christ, verse 13, you who were far off, God has brought near. The Israelites rejected God through their idolatry of legalism and rituals. They had created rules that became more important to them than the promises of God. But let's be clear, the Gentiles had also rejected God. They, they didn't do it through their legalism, but through their immorality and their neglect of God. It's not like the Gentiles were begging to be reconciled to God and the Israelites at this time. They weren't just like lining up to, get, to kind of gain entrance necessarily. Let's take circumcision for example. In verse 11, the Gentiles were called the uncircumcision by those who had circumcised themselves with human hands. The Israelites idolized this ritual. They thought that they were so much superior to these neighbors because of this religious activity. Meanwhile, the Gentiles weren't thinking to themselves, oh, I'd love to go get circumcised. They thought it was a ridiculous act. They thought it was a foolish religious activity. One early Jewish historian named Josephus actually wrote about Gentiles being la or laughing at Jews who had circumcised themselves. And so here we have two groups of people unreconciled to one another because of religious practices that had been misapplied, unreconciled to God because of the ways they each had rejected him, one through the idolatry of religion and one through the idolatry of irreligion. But all along, in the plan of God, the Jewish people were meant to be agents of reconciliation and peace in the world. They were meant to be a blessing to the nations. That was the promise God had given them to, to Abraham from the beginning. The Gentiles, meanwhile, are strangers to the promises of God, because the ones who were meant to be the mouthpiece of God's covenant were silent. And not only were they silent, they had actively built walls of enmity between them and the nations. See, the Gentiles, they were not lining up to be reconciled to God and his people because they did not know what they were missing. And there's a parallel to that in our own day. In similar ways, non-Christians are not just lining up to be grafted into our community. They're not begging us for the answers to their separation from God, and they think many of our practices are ridiculous but they don't know what they're missing out on. They've missed out on the promises of the covenant that God has given. And, and what they're missing out on is not our rules. It is not our rituals. It is not our Christian traditions. They're missing out on being reconciled to the living God through Jesus. And if we elevate our religion above Jesus, then we who are near will miss out as well. We are agents of reconciliation and peace in the world. And here's the great question for us all to be asking, are we living like agents of peace? Or are we erecting unnecessary walls of separation through our own practices? The reality is that living a life of peace, 
is not always going to be easy. And the only person you can control in the process is you. Now, you can work to remove barriers. You can pursue reconciliation. You can ask for forgiveness. You can offer it in return, but you cannot control the other person's response. Our passage is not telling us that reconciliation and peace are easy, but it is telling us that they are possible. Because there might be someone with whom reconciliation does not mean that your relationship just goes back to normal. Because of abuse or manipulation, reconciliation doesn't mean you ignore wisdom with regard to boundaries. And being an agent of reconciliation and peace does not mean the other person's going to respond well. They may not be ready. They may not be mature enough. And in the passage that we're reading, we need to remember that Paul is actually talking to two groups of people who have committed themselves to Jesus. And that changes things in the way that reconciliation happens. Because true and genuine reconciliation, like Paul's talking about here, is not possible without Christ. It will not be possible with someone who has rejected Jesus. And even though possible with people who do know Christ, it doesn't mean that they're always going to do it with you. It doesn't mean it's always going to go well. We can only take responsibility for our part. And it doesn't really work well when two people just kind of look at one another one day and say, let's be reconciled. But peace comes most naturally when two people who have looked at Christ, who see the enmity that he has taken in himself on the cross, they see that and then they can look to one another and be reconciled. It's a bit like an orchestra getting tuned before they play. If you've ever been to an orchestra concert or seen one portrayed on a movie, then as they begin, you'll hear everybody in the orchestra playing their own instrument. And it sounds a bit like kind of chaos, right? And, you're, and you might even be wondering, like, I paid to come and listen to these musicians make chaos. And then all of a sudden it all goes quiet. And you hear one person start to play usually the oboe, and everyone starts to tune themselves to the oboe. That's the only way it works. Because if everyone just sat down and they said, hey, let's tune to one another here, and then they turn to tune to the next person, and then they try and tune to the next person, it will never work. The way an orchestra gets tuned is they all tune to one sound, and then you'll hear this beautiful harmony around this concert pitch. This is what happens in our lives as well. This is how we are reconciled one to another when we remember the blood that brings peace. The call here is to remember, to remember that we were all once alienated, we were all once separated, whether through legalism or through license, and through Christ, he is taking those who were far and bringing them near by his blood, as it says in verse 13. There is blood that brings peace, and it was spent on behalf of those who would be reconciled to God. Verse 14 says, that he himself, Christ, is our peace, and that he has made us both one in himself. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He abolished the law and the commandments that were expressed in these ordinances. Here he's talking about removing this legalistic application of the promises of God. And the result, it says in verse 15, is that he would create in himself one new man where there were two, so making peace. Paul may have started out this passage just talking to the Gentiles, but his understanding is not just that the Gentiles joined the Jews as God's people. In his mind, these two people are becoming one new people. Where there were two, there is now one. And in this way, helpful for us, reconciliation does not mean just that someone is reconciled to you, as if you are the standard, as if you're the oboe in the orchestra. See, that's not us. Jesus is. And when two people come to be reconciled to him, then they are reconciled 
to another. Jesus makes us one through his blood. And in verse 17, it says that he came to preach peace to those who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. The assumption here is that both needed peace because neither truly had it in the way that they were living. And it was accomplished in verse 16 through one body on the cross, thereby killing enmity. When Jesus came into the world, he came as the perfect perfect representative of the covenant promises of God. The promise of peace that the Jews had missed in which the Gentiles were strangers, Jesus came to preach that peace, to embody that peace, to express that peace in his life. He was perfectly faithful to the commands of the covenant and he died as a violator of the covenant promises. In his one body on the cross, he died on behalf of all violators. Jesus died as the one who had enmity, enmity with God and enmity with others. And when he died, not only was his body killed, but in his body, hostility was killed with him. He put enmity into the grave and in his resurrection, he brought peace back out. And so now we who are in Christ, we have died with him. And when that happened, our claim on hostility and enmity and strife and keeping a grudge, it died with him as well. Just as Christ rose to new life and brought peace, so too in our life through Christ, we become agents of peace and reconciliation. We are ministers of reconciliation and not conflict, agents of peace, not discord. Now, I don't want to give any illusion today that this is easy, right? This is not always easy. However, reconciliation is possible because of the blood of Christ, that he preaches to a broken world. Now, I mentioned earlier that there's someone that God has laid on my heart. He's brought to my mind to bring reconciliation with. And and here's the deal. Up to this point, all that I've had the ability to do is just write their name down, to pray for it regularly, because there are layers to this relationship. It is fraught with landmines. But I know that God doesn't just want me to be someone who desires peace, but someone who works toward peace. And so I'm asking God for courage and strength and wisdom and how to take action. In River City Church, I am trusting that God will make us together into a people of reconciliation and peace. Me first and all of us as well. This is my prayer. Because Jesus brought us peace through his death, and God wants us to be agents of that peace in the world. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.